Well, good to be with you today. Great to see you all here, uh, especially those who were nearly arrested by the police here on motorbikes yesterday. Um, I've heard about it all already, but great, had a great day and uh, pray that God will bless what was done yesterday uh, in the days ahead. If you were here last Sunday, and you should have been unless you're preaching on Whitehead or somewhere like that. Um, then we looked in Philippians 4 at Paul's overall overarching belief that he could be uh, content in any and every circumstance. And when I was preparing that for last Sunday, I thought, well, that, that's great. It is a brilliant theme. But how does Paul work that out in everyday life? And so I want to look at Philippians chapter 1, because that theme of contentment, in a sense, works its way through all of his letter. And here we have one particular example of that contentment worked out in his life. So I want to read from Philippians chapter 1 and read from verse 1 through to verse 11. Paul and Timothy, uh, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And we know God bless that word, uh, particularly the text uh, for this morning in verse 6 where Paul writes, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. One of the first texts that he ever learned off by heart as a young Christian about 10 years of age, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And a, a text which meant then, and still does, a great deal to me as an individual Christian. That what God has begun in me, he's going to complete. And Paul's contentment was built upon Paul's confidence that God would do that. 
But what I want us to see today is that that's not just the question of his confidence that God would do it in himself, but actually his theme here is his confidence that God will complete the work he had begun in the church. This isn't just an individualistic message, although all of us should, as Christians, take it to heart individually. It's a corporate message. He's saying, what God has begun in you as a church, I'm confident he will bring to completion. That's set fresh from the context of what I'm calling a crisis looming. And we made reference to that last Sunday morning. Paul himself writes this letter from prison with all its physical limitations. It wasn't McGabbery in those days or any of the luxury prisons we have around the countryside today, comparatively speaking. I'm not venturing or volunteering to go into one. Uh, but comparative comfort nowadays compared to the utter basic situation that Paul would have found himself in physically. And Paul would have faced something of the mental strains of being isolated in prison as he was. He'd have felt his limitations in terms of spiritual fellowship and encouragement. All the way through his first verses, you can't miss the sense he really, really enjoyed being with God's people. Uh, however flawed they were, and they often were, yet he still got a great buzz out of being with God's people and enjoying praising together with them, praying together with them, teaching them, having uh, their impartation of spiritual benefit to himself. That rich tapestry of Christian fellowship was something he really enjoyed. And here he is now in prison, denied that fellowship and encouragement. He's restricted in his ministry. Although he says at the end of the day in this chapter, it's brilliant to think that even in that situation, God's opened up another door and he has access into the uh, military and political hierarchy in Rome at that time. And he's possibly facing death. And so in this chapter, in the opening chapter, he's talking about uh, staying in the body or departing into being with Christ. He, he knows that death could be on the doorstep for him. So here he is himself with his personal crisis, current loss of freedom, potential loss of life. But you can't read those verses without sense. He's not fixated on himself and his own personal predicament. He's aware that what is happening to him is a looming crisis for the Philippian church as well. When he writes to the Corinthians in that second letter, we made reference to it last week in chapter 11, all that long list of trials and troubles and hardships through which he went. Uh, I deliberately didn't touch on other words of verse 28, where he says, besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. 
Uh, so when we think of the Apostle Paul going through his life and now in prison and cut off from Christian fellowship, we have to know what's going on in his mind. And one of the things going through his mind is, what's happening in the churches? How are the churches coping with this situation? How are the churches bearing up under the pressure of this current day and age? So we have to be sure that in this opening chapter, while he talks about himself and his imprisonment and what it means to him, he's actually saying, what's this going to do for the church at Philippi? If he's executed, there'll be a whole series of aftershocks that will touch the people of God in places like Philippi. It could be a trigger for wholesale persecution and loss of liberty for God's people all around. Everyone who's been associated with this well-known soul of Tarsus, now Paul. Would the church survive loss of liberty and freedom as they have at present in the moment of which he's writing? If Paul's executed, then the church would have lost its human founder, its pastor, its inspired teacher, its watchful shepherd, its theological textbook. For all those things were wrapped up in what Paul was to churches generally, but in terms of Philippi them in particular, would the church survive? if Paul's taken off the scene completely and forever? If the unbelieving world lost such a unique and powerful evangelist as Paul was, then how could the the church of Jesus Christ anticipate spiritual growth and extension in the future the way they've experienced it in the past so much had in God's providence hinged upon Paul himself take Paul out the equation what happens to the church was there anybody who could take up the reins that he had held anyone who could have the influence that he had had Anyone who could have that powerful word in every uh, strata of society the way that he had? How long would the church survive in that kind of crisis? So an apparent crisis looming, not just for Paul, but for the churches he was leaving behind, like Philippi. And I think it's not hard for us to draw some comparisons with that and our own day and age. If we're honest, we're facing a very strange world in this part of the world at this moment in time. Changing laws, which are upsetting many Christians, but more than just upsetting us, raising a question, can the church survive into the future like it has done in the past? changing educational processes. At the moment, those of you who are teachers and in education have a a fairly free hand uh, to teach religious education as you believe it should be taught. But the soundings are out there already that that's going to stop fairly soon. How will the church survive 
a province of people who aren't brought into some kind of contact with Christian truth from their young days. We're living in a situation of changing attitudes to Christian beliefs and practices. Not just that people don't share our views, our beliefs, and our attitudes, but are becoming increasingly hostile towards them and saying, hang on, you Christians don't have all the right to truth. You don't have all the claim to be right. Will the church survive? It doesn't surprise me sometimes when I hear Christians and others query the future of the church and evangelicalism generally in our situation, or perhaps the individual churches in particular. How do you find contentment with crisis looming? So that's Paul's challenge personally. He's going to say at the end of the letter, I've learned in any and every situation to be content. Well, come on, Paul. How do you handle not only yourself facing your restricted freedoms and your potential death, but Paul, how do you remain content if you're taken out of the way and the churches are left to fend for themselves? The crisis is looming. But Paul's confidence, secondly, is that the work has begun. Being confident in this very thing, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. In the face of the circumstances we've outlined, the apostle is not panicking. He's not calling for the uh, evangelical equivalent of Cobra to come and have an emergency talk about the uh, terrible situation, the emergency situation that's facing the church in Philippi. He is compassionate. He is concerned. Late in that chapter where he talks about living being Christ and dying being gain, verse 21, he actually concludes that little bit of the argument in verse 24 by saying, it's more necessary for you, for you Philippians, it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So saying that personally, he's ready to die and go to glory. That's going to be a brilliant day, isn't it, for those who know and love the Lord. But in his compassion and concern for the church at Philippi, he wants to stay put. He wants to be available to them. He wants to have input into their lives and fellowship as a church. But he's utterly content that that doesn't happen. It's God who began the work. Those are things to notice in that phrase, he who began a good work in you, the one who has begun it. For while Paul was there right at the start of this church emerging out of that prayer meeting that Lydia held, he knew that the one who began the good work in them was not the Apostle Paul. The one who begun the good work in them was not an individual who preached to them or an individual who prayed for them or an individual who set them a brilliant example of being Christians. The one who began the good work 
with Christ through his spirit. And Paul had had that vividly etched on his mind, hadn't he? He'd been outside of Greece and then felt that Macedonian call and he'd come to Neapolis and moved on to Lydia and all the way he knew that God was at work that he found Lydia and her heart had been opened to the Lord. God had begun that work. And while God had used people like himself in that process of teaching and training and building up the church, it was ultimately God's work, not his. And certainly it wasn't theirs. It wasn't their own prayers that had saved them or their own spiritual quest that had converted them. The work that had begun them, the first stirrings in their heart, those first days of unsettlement of mind, that first longing to find truth and reality was actually God's spirit at work in them. And I say that for those who might be here this morning not yet Christians. And you might think, well, I don't have it in me to become a Christian. I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the understanding, I don't have the willpower, I don't have the determination to start the Christian life. No, that's that's fine. The one who will begin the good work in you, maybe has already begun it, is God through his spirit. And when you have those sleepless nights and it's all going through your head over and over and over again, you think, what on earth is going on? What's my life about? Where am I heading to? Where can I find that direction and strength and wisdom for life? It's God who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. It's God who began the work. And both for individuals and for the church, That's an important lesson for us to always remember. It's God's work, not ours. Something that comes out of that phrase of a work begun is, it was a good work. You began this good work in you. My wife's not here today, but if she was, she'd probably be able to tell you very eagerly of all the do-it-yourself jobs that I've started and never finished. Uh, quite a few have had to walk away from knowing I've made such a mess of them. They're unfixable. Uh, have to start from scratch and buy a new one, whatever it happened to be. God has never given somebody new birth as a new creation in Christ Jesus. And then walked away from that person and said, God, I made an awful mess there, didn't I? Or, that one was a waste of time. When God starts a work in us, it's always, always, always a good work. It's never shoddy workmanship. It's never a half-baked job. And again, if you're a Christian who's struggling at the moment spiritually and you, you start to wonder times, did I ever really become a Christian? Have I ever really started the Christian life? And I just want to emphasize, Scripture says what God begins is always a good work. But the third thing to take from that little phrase of a, a work begun is that it's just begun. 
It's a good work, but it's just the beginning of the job. If you pass by our flat in Merville Garden Village someday soon, uh, you'll see the whole block at the front. Uh, shops and flats are beautifully bedecked with scaffolding and blue netting. They finished doing that on Thursday, and that took them three weeks. Our neighbour said to me, I'm going to put some tinfoil on the windows uh, because my daughter's a wee bit shy about people staying in. I said, it'll only be for a week or two anyway. <laughs> I said, no, uh, they don't know how long the work's going to take. The work started on Thursday past. It's definitely going to be Christmas. It could be afterwards before the job's finished. Lots of work to be done. I didn't realise that. I just started to panic. For at least four months, we're going to have dirt and dust and drilling and hammering and intrusion on our privacy. There simply isn't a quick fix for the building needs of our block of flats and shops. And in the construction of God's children and in the construction of God's church, and in the construction of God's kingdom, there's no quick fix. The work has only just begun. And part of being content in the Christian life is being content with God's timing of things. I don't understand God's mind completely because I know that if he'd wanted to, he could have made me perfect the day he saved me. <laughs> but that didn't happen, as some of you can testify. And that's not his way of working. His way of working is to start a building work which takes a period of time and only gets completed in glory. And that's not just true for individuals, it's true for churches as well. The sad thing is sometimes when churches begin, they, they're so full of enthusiasm, so full of excitement, so positive about the future, they can't imagine anything going wrong in, in the days to come. And then it all seems to go sometimes downhill from there. But it's because... God's just begun the work. And the, the building process is part of what strengthens us as individuals, what constructs us as a people. The work has just begun. But Paul's confident God began it. And if God began it, he can rest content. Which takes us to our third thought this morning. The crisis was looming, the work had begun, and perfection is guaranteed. He will complete it. He will complete it. What he has begun in you as an individual believer, he will complete. What he's begun in you as a church, he will complete. I'm sure some of you have taken holidays to Edinburgh and seen the National Monument of Scotland on Carlton Hill just outside the capital city. 
It was built as a memorial to uh, Scottish uh, soldiers and sailors who died uh, fighting during the Napoleonic Wars. The uh, determination originally was it would be a memorial of the past, an incentive to the future towards heroism of the men of Scotland. Construction work started in 1826, but shortly afterwards they ran out of money. By 1829, what had been built was abandoned for lack of resources and never completed. So what was supposed to be an exact replica of the Parthenon in Athens, kind of inch by inch, meter by meter, you've got a front wall and nothing else. And so ever since it's obtained a, a series of nicknames, it's sometimes called Edinburgh's Disgrace, or the Pride and Poverty of Scotland, or the Shame of Scotland, or most often Edinburgh's Folly. A work began, but lacked the resources to bring it to completion. Paul's contentment is his confidence that what God began, God will complete. God's work will never be left to become a shame, a disgrace, or a folly. And I would say, as you know very well, it's perfectly true that churches and Christian individuals have their moments of shame and their moments of disgrace, their moments of folly, because the work isn't completed yet. Building sites are messy places. And spiritual building sites are messy places. God knows when he saves us, when he begins a good work in us, that he's asking us to struggle through the ups and downs of our own personal life, to struggle through the ups and downs of our family life, to struggle through the ups and downs of our career and our work life, to struggle with all the ups and downs of a world around us that doesn't share our, our values and our systems and our beliefs. God knows that. He knows it's messy. But Paul's positive that though the construction process is difficult and messy at times, it will come to completion and be perfect. Some of you can remember the day when this building was complete. I don't know the story, but I can guess that there was a snagging process that began the day the work was complete. Because builders finish the work, but it's not actually finished then. There's still all the snagging and all the problems and for the next week or the next 10 days, or the next two weeks or whatever. The deacons having to go around finding all that was wrong in the building work that was completed last week. That's how life is. But not spiritually. God is working in us, constructing us, building us, shaping us, fashioning us now, but one day that work will be complete and it will be perfectly complete. There will be no snagging process 
that has to take place for a wee while afterwards. Or changing the metaphor, Jesus talks about preparing his bride. And part of the process through which we're going now is the bride being prepared for her bridegroom. And the guarantee is that the work will be complete and she'll be stunningly beautiful. Christ's church will not have the tiniest flaw in the last day. Rather, this bride of Christ will be presented to him spotless, perfect. I think that's important for us to remember when we're frustrated with the imperfections we see in each other. We always see them in each other pretty quickly, don't we? And you see someone who doesn't seem to be performing as a Christian the way you think they should perform. Or you see someone who's not walking as closely as you wish they'd be walking with Christ. Or you see a son and a daughter and they're heading off to university soon. You think, oh dear, will they survive in that terribly godless place called England? Here's a promise. What God has begun, he'll complete perfectly. Not a single flaw in that person at the end of the day. Important not just remember that for each other when you get impatient or cross with each other or fed up with each other or puzzled by each other, but important about ourselves as well. Because we're honest, some of the deepest struggles we have are finding stuff inside our own hearts and minds that we wish had been dealt with long ago. And one of the biggest question marks that comes in the Christian life is, can I really be a Christian today when I think the things I think and say the things I say and do the things I do and watch the things I watch? Where's that finished work coming from? But here's the beauty of it, isn't it? It's not going to be in this life. This life is all part of that process by which God continues his good work in us until the day of completion. And understanding the work is not yet finished, but being sure that one day it will be is the very heart of what being a Christian is about. That's how we learn contentment. Contentment isn't complacency with how things are. And if you're in church today and you think, well, everything is just absolutely perfect. You know, I'm just a wonderful Christian and I've got everything sorted and I never do anything wrong and I am the perfect member of Carrick Fergus Baptist Church. Go home and look in the mirror, would you? Because none of us are that. We're all works under construction. We're all a bride being prepared for the bridegroom. It's not complacency we're talking about, but it's being content and confident that the one who began is the one who will complete. It's that calm contentment that God's purposes will succeed. 
And so as we close today, we're thinking of the Apostle Paul in prison with uncomfortable circumstances for himself, with a potential death threat ahead. And for himself, he's content. He's in God's hands for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. What's his attitude to the church in Philippi? He believes he needs to be there with them if if that's in God's plans and purposes. There's stuff he needs to do with them and for them for the days ahead because they're just the building site. They're just a construction site and the work has to go on yet. But... But he's confident that the one who began that work is the one who will bring it to completion. Let's pray together. (coughs) Father, we just rejoice in that sweet confidence we can have in you as the sovereign God and Lord of his church knowing that you have begun a good work, not just in us as individuals, but in us as your church, your bride. And thank you, Lord, for that even greater comfort we have, knowing that he who has begun that good work will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, grant that that would be a source of real comfort and contentment in our hearts today and in all our days till glory. Amen.